The Conspiracy Podcast contains adult language, suggestive themes, sexual situations, and discussions of some pretty horrific events. Basically, all the good stuff. Thanks for listening. cats and kittens welcome back to conspiracy the podcast where we feed our husbands and wives to tigers (laughs) 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 i'm carol baskin oh i mean liz (laughs) carol bask liz the cat's on the peg (laughs) oh pardon (laughs) pardon Carol is our pod mate. I mean, I have enough cats. It's basically a cat rescue. Speaking of the cat in my bag, I'm (laughs) Renee. Get it? Because my wife's name is Cat. That's funny. Um, Oh my God. Huh? My name's kind of close to Cat, too. I'm a cat. That's true. But you're not in my bag or out of my bag. Or is she? Anywhere near my bags. You hear? You, Kong, heard, Kong. you heard it here first, y'all. Um, Renee has me trapped in a bag, <laughs> <laughs> six feet away from me at all times. Yep. She doesn't let me scooch too close. No, it's dangerous. Social distance. Visit her, and she shoved me in a bag and said, "Stay there for two days." <laughs> mm-hmm. That seems safe. Yesterday, Katie came to my uh, porch safely at a distance to um, bring me some uh, ashwagandha and some bread, and it was so weird not squeezing her little body. <laughs> no, I wanted to give you a hug before I left. I know, but then we were like, ooh, maybe not. <laughs> so, how have you guys been? How have you guys been? What have you been up to? What have you been doing? Um, well, I have been sucked into TikTok. Okay. Well, you're young enough for it, so. That's true, I guess. I'm not as old as you little fuckers, but. I'm an old lady. It's true. I don't make them because I don't hate myself that much, but I watch them a lot. I've watched um, probably four seasons of Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, and, like, why are you torturing yourself? 
I love Guy Fieri. People do this. I don't know why it's so cool to like hate him. I. It's not that I hate him. You're watching a show about diners and drive-ins. You can't go to any of those right now. Oh, oh well, that's true. <laughs> that's true. But I think I think people hate Guy Fieri just because it's like a cool thing to hate Guy Fieri because he looks ridiculous. It but makes I, him sad. I've heard from literally every single person who has like been on his show that he is one of the nicest people ever. Yeah. And I believe it. He is one of the most philanthropic, famous people in the world. Yeah, didn't he recently did like a really big, I think it was maybe last year for hurricane relief. Mm-hmm. Like he went and like cooked for first responders or something. I don't know. I feel like he's one of those people that like plays a character and people just assume he is exactly like his character when in reality he's a real nice genuine person although i feel like people would hate him less if he didn't have something called donkey sauce at his restaurant <laughs> what? yes his his um his cheesy applebee's ripoff restaurant that i think is closed down now but it used to be in new york city it's not closed it's down like- oh well okay but it's still open but yeah it had it had basically like uh, like an Applebee's, and it had everything had a ridiculous name, and his sauce was called Donkey Sauce, yeah. and I think it was like a spicy mayo. I don't remember. Hmm. But I just like feel like it's my personal responsibility to stand up for Guy Fieri at all times because I don't know why he's precious and we should protect him at all costs. I mean, that's fine. We all have our missions in life. Yeah. Well, that's basically my quarantine is TV. I've been doing yoga, taking walks. That's about it. What about you guys? I've been working and hanging out at home, helping with projects and just keeping children alive. You know. Only the biggest deal ever right now. (laughs) Katie's just making sure that humanity continues after this quarantine is over. No big deal. I look out my window every morning and say, oh, everything's still put together. We're good. Another day. (laughs) Renee, how's your week? The most amazing thing in the world happened to me this week. And Mm -hmm. depending on when this comes out, he might not even be following me on Instagram anymore. But on Monday, um, Ross Millard of the Future Heads fucking followed me on Instagram after we had uh, a brief little conversation about uh mark i think i think his name is mark kozalek i think because i feel like when i first started listening to him i called him mark kozalek and somebody corrected me it's one of the two anyways <laughs> uh, mark <laughs> mark kozalek who is like elliot smith but better and uh ross posted him in his stories and i just kind of like messaged him and i was like oh my god you like mark kozalek i love mark kozalek i'm a you must be a big fan of these other two bands that he's been associated with, uh, Red House Painters and Sun Kill Moon. And we had a nice little conversation about it. And then he followed me and I um, I died a little bit from happiness because it is one of the happiest things to ever happen to me besides being married. Um, I've, I have literally been a fan of this band for se- I, I, pro- 16, 17 years. Like pro- I'm pretty sure since 2003, 2004. Um, definitely 2004, maybe 2003. I have I've owned every album they've ever put out, most of them on vinyl. 
I have seen them four times in concert in Atlanta and one time in London. Uh, I have spoken to them twice and made an ass of myself both times. So, uh, <laughs> and um, uh, I was having a really, 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 really shitty day at work at my last job um, back in like August. I was, um, I think I've probably fussed about my old job a little bit on this podcast and I've definitely fussed about my old job a lot to Katie and Liz and they have always been very sweet and receptive to my bitching. But I was having an especially bad day, and I was listening to um, a little band called Bathory, who are not the best band to listen to when you're in a bad mood. And I, after a few songs, I realized that, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to listen to the Future Heads because I love them, and I haven't listened to them in forever. So I just popped over to Spotify to listen to one of their older albums, and I saw that they had new stuff, like new songs posted. So I did a little, I was like, oh my god, new songs, what the fuck? So I like went, did my little Goog search and found out that they were reuniting, which is great because I did listen to all of their side projects. Um, Ross was in like three, two or three bands, three bands during the hiatus. And then the lead singer, Barry, had his own little solo piano man project, which was pretty good. But I was very excited to see that they were back together and they released a new album and it is amazing. And um He's watched a few of my Instagram stories, which is really great. He hasn't liked one of my pictures yet, but it's going to happen. And uh, maybe someday we'll become best friends. That's my hope. So, yeah. Can you imagine? Mm-hmm. That would, uh, I might die. I might actually die if we became best friends. Because I, uh, yeah. But it would be amazing. It'd be a great way to die. So, if he ever listens to this podcast, we can become best friends. Maybe. And, um. And uh, talk about cool photographers and art that we like. Could be fun. Who knows? All right. I know Liz posted it, but why don't you guys tell me what you're drinking right now? Everything you're drinking. Well, okay. I was going to say, I have a few cups currently. (laughs) Um, I'm drinking lemon cucumber water. Delicious. I'm drinking sweet ginger orange tea and I'm also drinking a Dr. Pepper because I hate myself a what a Dr. Pepper oh well Dr. Pepper is the most superior of sodas like and diet Dr. Pepper is the most superior diet soda (laughs) so if you're gonna drink a soda the conspiracy podcast says if you're gonna drink a soda drink Dr. Pepper yes Dr. Pepper sponsor us I would, if they want to sponsor us, I would start drinking soda again. We've been drinking. I you know that uh, Kroger Seltzer makes a fake Dr. Pepper seltzer? No. Dr. Pepper seltzer? <laughs> really good. Isn't it Dr. Seltzer lightning? I, th- no, it's not. It's, hold on. I'm just kidding. <laughs> what is, oh, it's Dr. Thunder. At Kroger, isn't it? Yes, that's a regular fake Dr. Pepper. It's, uh, is it just called the Doctor? Because it's like Fizz and Co. Is their fake soda seltzer, and yeah, it's called the Doctor flavored seltzer water, and it's actually pretty good. They have one that's flavored like Dr. Pepper, and then they have one that's flavored like root beer, and they're both pretty good. 
Huh. I'm sorry. And I sound <laughs> I had a moment where I realized exactly how old I sounded when I said that. So I mean, it's useful though because I drink entirely way too much Coke and Dr. Pepper. But mm-hmm. I balance it out and I drink like two gallons of water a day. So I mean eh. Damn. I'm drinking plain water. <laughs> Plain water and then traditional medicinal uh, echinacea plus and throat coat. I don't have a okay. throat. I just love the way the throat coat tastes. Leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> Renee, tell us what you're having. Okay, so I am also drinking um, plain water, plain little tappy tap water. So proud of uh, all I, of us. I am drinking uh, coffee. Uh, I am drinking some. What's wrong with you? That this is who I am. I've got, I've got a big mug of coffee. I've got a mug of uh passion fruit tea, which is really good. And then I have a um a Kentucky Mule to sip on. Well, in all seriousness, friends, we hope that you are being safe and that you are sane and that you are finding some outlets, whether they're creative or maybe like not that creative. <laughs> if you need to sit and watch TV like me every day for a couple hours, just to forget about, you know, the current state of our country and also the world, then do that. But, you know, wash your hands, wash your ass, cough into your elbow Love your neighbors. And Carol Baskin killed her husband. Okay. <laughs> she did, and that's fine. You know what? She and did. Episode of her. We're going to talk about how and why Carol Baskin killed her husband and got away with it. <laughs> I someday we will talk about that. Someday we will talk about that. I but saw not, it. Not tiger. Tiger saw man. That's long as gonna be stuck in my fucking head during this entire episode. Yes. I'm gonna be trying to pronounce fucking Enochian deities, and I'm just gonna be thinking about fucking Joe Exotic. So thanks y'all for that. Thanks y'all. As You're Joe so Exotic would say. But in all serious seriousness. Uh, we are talking about something incredibly interesting this episode. I think it's incredibly interesting because it was my idea to do this subject. So I'm biased. But um, we're talking about my personal favorite, British bisexual occultist. And my favorite song by Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, Katie, do you want to tell them who it is? <clears throat> First, uh, is it... Crowley or Crowley? Okay, so <laughs> so technically, technically, I think it is supposed to be Crowley because that's how um, British people say it, right? Because um, I said it was slowly. Yeah, but every American I've ever heard has said Crowley. Okay, so, so I say it both ways. <laughs> Yeah, we'll just we'll just flip back and forth. 
Um, I didn't even realize I was saying it wrong until I watched Good Omens. Mm-hmm. And in Good Omens, one of the characters is named Crowley. And it's spelled like Alistair Crowley. And somebody asked Neil Gaiman, an American like me, asked Neil Gaiman, was like, I've always heard it pronounced Crowley. Why is it pronounced Crowley? And he was like, well, I'm I'm a British man and I've always heard it pronounced Crowley. So <laughs> in case y'all have never heard Neil Gaiman speak, that is exactly what he sounds like. Yep, that's very accurate. I am amazing. I am as good as impre- as good at impressions as Amy Poehler is. And that is a fact. That's on my business card. I love Amy Poehler. But any hoosie boozies, which I'm sure is British slang for something. (laughs) Oh, man. But yes, Katie is going to tell you all about Mr. Crowley. Okay, so we're talking about, I'm going to go by his original name right now. (laughs) Edward Alexander Crowley was born on October 12th, 1875 in Royal Lemington Spa, Warwickshire, England. Good lord. Every city in England sounds like a fake city. It's so long. They couldn't yeah. just sit on it. <laughs> um, so, also known as Alistair Crawley is who we're talking about today. But his, mm-hmm. uh, his birth name was, uh, he was named after his father, so... Here we go. Okay. If I was named after my dad, I would change my name to you. So. Yeah. Crowley was known as a famous British occultist, a person who practiced magic, spelt with a K. And he also called himself Beast 666, which was uh, kind of a nickname his mother actually gave him. So he was a great child. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Alistair's father, Edward Crowley, um, was able to retire before Alistair was born due to an inheritance he got from his family's brewery called Crowley's Alton Ales. (laughs) These names. Edward Crowley was born a Quaker um, before he converted to a Christian fundamentalist, fundamentalist group known as the Plymouth Brethren. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Crowley's mother was Emily Bertha Bishop. Um, Crowley's, sorry. Crowley's parents were married in 1874, just one year before Alistair was born. After his parents were married, Emily joined Edward in becoming part of the Plymouth Brethren, um, and which Alistair's father was a devout follower of it. Um, he was a traveling preacher, and every day after the family ate breakfast, he read Bible passages to them. And even though Alistair grew up pretty much rejecting the Christian religion, he did, for his father's sake, become a follower for some time. And then he was like, you know what? Fuck this shit. So when Alistair was eight, he started school at H.T. Habershon Evangelical Christian Boarding School. And from there, he went to Eber Prepper. Preparatory school in Cambridge. Ever was run by Reverend Henry. Oh my God, I'm going to fuck this up. D.R.C. Chapney. So, um, yeah. So this Reverend, uh, Alistair was actually convinced that he was a sadist. 
And that kind of intrigued Alistair. Oh, I'm sure. Who I am sure. He was like, yeah. Um, In 1887, when Alistair was just 11 years old, his father died from tongue cancer, which I didn't know was a thing. What? Tongue. Oh, no. You got cancer in your tongue? Yeah, apparently. You can get cancer everywhere. Alistair's father's death had a big impact on him because he really, really admired his father, and he actually called his father his hero, which, knowing that he grew up totally opposite of what his father, you know, was religiously into, um, the fact that he admired his father, even though he made fun of everybody else who followed that religion, is pretty sweet. So Crowley's mother, so, so Alistair was really upset after his father died and he was left at 11 years old with, with his mother, which Alistair's mother did not have a good relationship with her son. Uh, she did call him the beast, which her son was like, fuck yeah, keep calling me the beast. I love it. Like he was weird. Hmm. It's fine. Um, and Emily thought Alistair's rejection of the Plymouth Brethren was brought on by the devil. His mother's thoughts about her son didn't get any better after Edward died since Alistair began to act out at his school, in which his sadist reverend would severely punish him for what he did. And knowing how he was in his adult life, I wonder if the punishments kind of intrigued him. <laughs> he was on yeah. his and he was just like, hope this doesn't awaken anything in me. <laughs> relatable (laughs) that is relatable content (laughs) Alistair continued his education in Christian school settings which made him despise the Christian religion even more he would call out his teachers about their inconsistencies with their teachings of the Bible Um, and I feel like he probably was like the antichrist to some of his teachers. Um, On top of questioning his teachers as a young man, he totally went against his Christian upbringing by smoking, masturbating, which poor, poor, poor kids. They weren't allowed to masturbate back in the day, apparently. I mean, I was raised Christian and uh, I'm not sure if that's true. Oh my. It could be like a big deal. Like they're like it's um the sin of sin of Onan. Onanism mm-hmm. is to mm-hmm. spill your seed not in the crevasse of a woman. Alistair also did something that um made his mother oh so proud. He had lots and lots and lots of sex with prostitutes, which he contracted both gonorrhea and syphilis from. In eighteen ninety five, when Alistair was twenty, he changed his name from Edward to Alistair. Uh he came about the change in his name after a visit to Sweden where he had a life-changing vision that helped him on his spiritual journey of the occult. Um, and apparently, not apparently, he did because it's written in his own text. So, <laughs> his own autobiography. Yeah. Uh, he said this about his name about in his autobiography. He said, For many years I had loathed being called Alec partially because of the unpleasant sound and sight of the word, partly because it was the name by which my mother called me. Edward did not seem to suit me, and the diminutives Ted or Ned were even less appropriate. 
Alex- Alexander was too long, and Sandy suggested toe, hair, and freckles. I had read in some books or other that the most favorable name for becoming famous was one consisting of a dactyl followed by a spondy. Did I say that right? <laughs> Nobody talks like that. No. Oh, girl. Oh, my God. When I was doing my research, I was like, where the fuck did they get these fucking words? They fucking words. A dactyl? What the hell is a dactyl? Like, it's like they were saying pterodactyl, but they left out some letters there. I was just about to say, it sounds like a dinosaur. Um, so, uh, it had to consist of a dactyl followed by a spondy at the end of a hexameter like Jeremy Taylor. Alistair Crowley fulfilled these conditions and Alistair is the Gallic form of Alexander to adopt it would satisfy my romantic ideals. So yeah, he just kind of fell in love with his own new name. French bitch. How dare he? It's a very un-British thing to do. Uh, Also in 1895, Crowley began a three-year study at Cambridge University. He studied philosophy and English literature. He was also an avid chess player, and he even thought about becoming a professional chess player. Mm, He was fancy. Um, Aside from being a really good chess player, Alistair also really enjoyed hiking, or as he called it, mountaineering. He would spend holidays in the Alps, and he also engaged in other extracurricular activities like other college kids do. While on holiday in Stockholm in 1896, Alistair had his first same-sex sexual experience, which encouraged him to embrace being bisexual. Of course, due to the times, this was very much illegal. Alistair engaged in sexual relations with prostitutes, again, um, also with men. Uh, One of his first relationships with a man was with Herbert Charles Pullett, who was the president of the Cambridge University Footlights Dramatic Club, like the theater club. Um, Alistair continued to study Western esoteric beliefs, and Pullett did not agree with this part of his life. They ended their relationship, but Alistair would come to regret this breakup later in his life. His life could have been fine if he wouldn't have been trying to do the dark stuff. It's It's how it always ends. Everybody wants to date a witch until she starts uh, doing satanic rituals in her secret office. Mm -hmm. While studying at Cambridge, Alistair thought about a career in Russian diplomacy. He traveled to Russia in hopes of learning Russian to better his chances. And during this time, though, Alistair developed an illness that caused him to give up the idea. The illness had a big impact on him and and he began to think more philosophically on life and death, and the futility of all human endeavor. Uh, this also began his journey into more of the world of the occult. Alistair was, you know, studied English literature, um, and he read a lot of books. Um, but he also read a lot of books by a certain occultists, such as A.E. Waits, uh, and he read the book of Black Magic and of Pax, and Carl von Eckerstarsen. <laughs> It's it's like it's like their fucking mother just grabbed a bunch of scrabble tiles and get, and shook them like uh, dice yeah, and, them and we're like yep that's that's what this that's what the fucking thing is um, yeah Carl von Eckhart Scherzen's The Cloud Upon the Sanctuary so in 1898 Alistair published a few poems uh, one poem was titled Akeldama, a place the very strangers in. 
it was not a big hit, but he did have another one that was a big hit, but it had to be printed overseas because the British authority would not allow it because it was an erotic poem called White Stains. I wonder what those white stains are. Melt. I'm drained. Is it really? No. (laughs) I was hoping it was semen. Oh. Writing poems about jizz. Uh, (laughs) Library paste. Oh. Oh, my. That's what she said. (laughs) Um, 1898 was a pretty busy and exciting year for Alistair. Aside from the publications of his poems, Alistair met two occultists, a chemist named Julian L. Baker and his brother-in-law, Cecil Jones. Uh, They were members of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which was an occult society that was founded in 1888. Real cool. And on November 18th, 1898, Alistair became part of the Outer Order of the Golden Dawn by the leader of the group, Samuel L- Liddell MacGregor. <laughs> I hate everything right now. Uh, during the ceremony, <laughs> during the ceremony, Alistair took the magical motto and name Frater Perdubo. Per- Perdurabo. <laughs> this is hard. Here we go. Huh? Frater Perdurbo. Perdurbo. <laughs> it's a weird, uh, it's like a name that he was given in a motto, a magical motto. Oh, yeah, that was one of the things they did. That was one of the things that they did in the Hermetic Order and that um, Crowley, Crowley took into Thelema. The Golden Dawn included elements of astrology, the tarot, alchemy, and magic. Alistair studied ceremonial magic under the guide of Alan Bennett. Uh, together, they studied rituals of Gotia, which was basically demonology, and some heavy drug use as well. I didn't look into what kind of drugs he was doing, but I'm assuming some, like, mine, not like, like, what was he doing? Um, He was a big lover of hashish. He actually wrote um, a book about how much he, or maybe not a book, but like a paper like a pamphlet about how much he loved hashish. And then um, I feel like he also took like whatever the early 1900s version of LSD is. Obviously not LSD, but yeah, like mind altering substances like that. Alistair studied up on everything the Golden Dawn had to show him. And eventually he moved up to the group's inner second order, or he tried to. But due to his bad reputation, which was his bisexuality and his libertine lifestyle, the group actually denied his request to be in the second order. Uh, So Alistair went to Mathers, the leader, and he admitted that uh, Alistair into the Oedipus minor grade. This authority Mathers displayed upset a lot of the members of the London order, and in the end, Alistair and Mathers were both ousted by the group. Uh, After leaving the Golden Dawn, Alistair traveled... Well, for Trevor. After leaving the Golden Dawn, Alistair traveled to Asia in 1900, where he studied tantric yoga and began a climbing expedition in the first attempt to climb K2 in 1902 in India. After this trip, Crowley went back to Europe and began focusing on more art like he did before. He was hanging out with other artists around Paris, and one of his friends was Gerald Kelly, uh, who introduced Alistair to his very own sister, Rose Kelly. Uh, Alistair fell in love with her. The two ended up marrying pretty much like right after they met. 
Rose was, it was more sort of like an arranged marriage for Rose, but they uh, actually ended up falling in love with each other pretty fast. And um, Rose gave Alistair a boost of confidence. Not that he honestly needed one because he seemed like he was pretty confident in himself. Oh, yeah, but everyone needs, like, a partner in crime, you know? Everyone needs somebody who's going to be like, yes, honey, read that esoteric book. Summon that demon. That's what she did. She's like, hey, yeah, just to make – yeah, you should start your own religion Um, because she's talking to, you know, Greek gods and shit. Horace apparently came to her uh, informing her that he was waiting for Alistair. And then shortly after Rose told Alistair this – Alistair says that Horace's messenger, Iwas, uh, spoke to him, and he took the messages from both Horace and Iwas and wrote the Book of Law, which that book would become the main point of Thelema. Yeah. Which was his his thing that y'all are going to talk about. Oh, my God. I'm going to talk about it. Y'all going to learn me something. I have four and a half pages on it, so just get ready. All right, kids. So in case you haven't noticed, in the last almost year of this podcast, uh, we all have our roles here. You know, we all bring something totally different and unique to the table. And that's why, you know, we're loved. This is the uh, segment of the show where you might want to stretch, take a couple laps, start knitting a blanket because you're probably going to finish that blanket before Renee is done Telling oh you God. all the things. <laughs> I thought you were going to be like, so if it's legal in your state, get your grinder out, get that big fluffy kush kush. Let's get that jazz cabbage poppin', chowdy. No, I mean, there's nothing wrong with having an informative, you know, learning session. I'm just letting the kids know ahead of time that this is where they need to take a lap, take a stretch, order some yeah. classmates, get cozy. I'm laying down. I'm curled up in my blanket. I'm wearing my pajamas. You know, I'm just ready for Renee to tell me all about esoteric demons. I am so ready to talk about it. It is impossible to talk about Alistair Crowley without discussing Enochian magic, which while he did not found it, it was a huge, 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 huge influence on his life. So, um, because... I want to, and it makes sense, we're going to talk a little bit about Enochian magic. Uh, So basically, it begins with the 16th century writings of two men named John Dee and Edward Kelly, who have the easiest names in this entire story. Um, But they claim information in their writings, including the revealed Enochian language, was delivered to them directly from various angels. Um, The raw material for the Enochian magical system was dictated through a series of the angelic communications, which lasted from 1582 to 1589. And Kelly's chosen method was scrying, um, which is basically like when you use a crystal ball to reveal messages. So you use some sort of physical medium to um, see secret messages or the future or whatever. So he used um, a crystal shoe stone, which is like really close to a crystal ball. Um, He described aloud what he saw and then um, 
John D would scribble it down and he kept meticulous written records of the messages and rituals. So when the angels would appear in the shoe stone, Kelly would communicate with them in the Anakian language, which is reputedly a real and complex language of unknown origin, but it has a melodic sound similar to Sanskrit, Greek, and Arabic. Um, he set up charts of squares either filled with letters or left blank, and the angels would spell out messages by pointing with a rod to various squares. So, like, super similar to what Renona Ryder did in the first season of Stranger Things. Um, <laughs> so, Kelly would claim the angel, he could see the angels because he was clairvoyant, and then he would dictate the messages to... Uh, upside down? What? He went to the upside down. Is that what it's called? I feel I feel like he definitely went to the upside down, considering some of the shit I'm about to talk about. I feel like he's the mayor of the upside down. <laughs> he probably he probably fucking is. Cause okay, I, it's funny you guys say that. He the messages were dictated to him backwards because communicating directly with the angels would unleash dangerous and powerful forces beyond control, and then. Um, once the messages were dictated, they would rewrite them in reverse order. So the complete Enochian material produced by these two men in a span of seven years were 19 invocations, which they refer to as calls or keys. They did full translations of every single one of the invocations, um, a full Enochian alphabet consisting of 21 letters which uh, were more than 100 large squares, each divided into smaller squares, uh, 2,401 in number, and then instructions for using the squares in concert with the calls and further occult teachings. So while these writings were somewhat popular at the time, they received renewed interest in the late 19th century when... Samuel Liddell McGregor Mathers, who Katie mentioned, incorporated this Enochian magic into his group of English mysticists known as the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And actually, um, if you said this, Katie, I didn't hear you, but you can the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn still exists today and you can become a member of it. I looked it up. So yeah, I didn't see that. Yeah, you can still become yeah, a fucking member. Hmm? Are you a member now? Uh, not yet. Oh. Not, you know, yet. Uh, so, like King said, uh, Crowley himself was part of the Golden Dawn, and he quickly moved up the ranks and was actually really close friends with Mathers, but he ended up getting sort of kicked out in 1900. Um, in the Golden Dawn view, the lower 18 keys invoked angels, of various magic squares. And then the 19th key invoked one of the 13 ethers into unexplored dimensions of consciousness. So it was like a, like you're working your way up to the 19th key, sort of. While Crowley was undoubtedly introduced to Enochian magic through being a member of the Golden Dawn and having a close relationship with Mathers, he first started really studying Dee's writings on his own in the early 1900s. And then in 1909, he was able to invoke the 30 ethers of Enochian magic while his 
uh, sexual partner at the time, who is also his closest disciple and traveling companion, a man named Victor Newberg, recorded the results. And that was when he experienced what was later published in a journal called the Equinox as the vision and the voice. And this was his most extensive commentary on the magic of the keys, although he studied them at length. Um, Crowley subscribed to the definition of the ethers or airs as dominion extending in ever-widening circles without and beyond the watchtowers of the universe. These watchtowers composing a cube of infinite magnitude. If you can wrap your head around that. Um, according to Crowley, only the properly initiated could invoke all of the 30 ethers in the 19th key. The results produced visions of spirits and astral beings, and Crowley recorded his communications with them. So, following a mountaintop sex magic ritual, <laughs> have I mentioned I love this guy? Uh, Crowley, <laughs> Crowley performed an invocation to the demon Charanzan involving blood sacrifice, considering the results of this ritual to be a watershed in his magical career. So, if you um, don't feel like your head is spinning and you think you can handle a little bit more magical substance, we can talk about the basics of Thelema. Which, I swear to God, if I find out I'm pronouncing this wrong, I'll kill myself. I was literally wondering that the entire time I was researching. I was like, what if I say it wrong and everyone thinks I'm dumb? But I can't think of any other way to say it. So I think you're great. I know that like some British person is going to be like, it's Thalama. Or something <laughs> it's Thelma <laughs> and Louise. <laughs> Thelma and Crowley's. <laughs> um... So Crowley asserted or believed himself to be the prophet of a new age, the Eon of Horus, based upon a spiritual experience. He and his wife, Rose Edith, the wonderful woman we spoke about a little bit before, um, they had this wonderful spiritual experience in Egypt in 1904. By his account, a possibly non-corporal or preterhuman being calling itself Iwas, Awas, I don't know. That's what I said. <laughs> um, contacted him through Rose and subsequently dictated a text known as the Book of Law or Liber al Vel Legis, which outlines the principles of Thelema. Uh, three statements in particular distill the practice and ethics of Thelema. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. This means adherents of Thelema should seek out and follow their true path. Um, so they should find and determine their true will, capital T, capital W. Uh, number two is love is the law, love under will, which is the nature of the law under Thelema is love. But love itself is subsidiary to finding and manifesting one's authentic purpose or mission. The third one is every man and woman is a star. So in the 20th century era of vulgaris cosmology, it is believed Persons doing their wills, capital W, are like stars in the universe, occupying a time and position in space, yet distinctly individual and having an independent nature, largely without undue conflict with other stars. And there's an interesting um, little side note about the word thelema, because it's actually a Greek word. It's rare in classical Greek. It signifies the appetitive will desire sometimes even sexual um so it's pretty rare when you look at classical greek texts but it's frequent in the septuagint which is the main greek translation of the bible 
Um, so early Christian writings occasionally use the word to refer to the human will and even the will of God's created faith, uh, tester and inquisitor, the devil. But it usually refers <laughs> to the will of God. I'm sorry, I can't help it. I don't know why I'm like this. One well-known example is in the Lord's Prayer, um, where it says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Greek word they use there is Thelema. And then in the Renaissance, a character named Thelemia represents will or desire in the... Oh, God. Okay. All right. <clears throat> Hypnerotomachia polyphily of the Dominican <laughs> friar. Yeah. Francesco Colonna. It's fine. I did this to myself. I said I want to do this part. It's wow. fine. That's true. You did. The protagonist in this work is... Polyphilo, and he has two allegorical guides, logistica, which means reason, and thelemia, which means will or desire. The literal definition of the term thelemite is, according to Merriam-Webster, the be-all, end-all of American dictionaries, uh, one who does as he or she pleases. And one may take this definition to entail, by, exten by extension, one who does their will. So in Thelema, there is no standard conception of what one must believe or do or what, if anything, you have to practice in order to be considered a Thelemite. Um, so there's no standardized Thelemic orthodoxy. In the most basic sense, a Thelemite is any person who either does their will, if going by Crowley's conception, then their true or pure will, as opposed to the mundane will of the ego, or attempts to discover and do that will. So the, the, <clears throat> the theology of Thelema suggests all manifested existence arises from the interaction of two cosmic principles, the infinitely extended all-pervading space-time continuum and the atomic individually expressed principle of life and wisdom. The interplay of these principles gives rise to the principle of consciousness which governs existence. In the Book of Law, the divine principles are personified by a trinity of ancient Egyptian divinities. Um, Newt, the goddess of infinite space, Hadith, the winged serpent of light, and Ra Hor Kuit, or Horus, the solar hawk-headed leader of the cosmos. So within the theological system, these three divinities, in addition to other ones from various cultures and religions, are used as personifications of specific divine, archetypal, and cosmic forces rather than the literal deity. Thelemic doctrine says the diverse religions of humanity are grounded in universal truths, and the study of each religion is an important discipline for many self-proclaimed Thelemites. With respect to concepts of the individual soul, Thelema follows traditional hermeticism, believing each person possesses a soul or body of light, which is arranged in layers or sheaths surrounding the physical body. So, yes, humans are like onions. We have layers. <laughs> Thank you, Shrek. <laughs> I I don't know why I'm like this. I'm sorry. Each individual is also considered to have his or own personal ogedes, thanks Crowley, or holy guardian angel, which can be considered both as the higher self and as a separate sentient divine being. So kind of like the superego, but also kind of like a 
guardian angel who watches over you. Kind of like a combo of those two. Um, Similar to Buddhist doctrine, the body of light is considered to be subject to metempsychosis or, as it's known by literally everyone else in the world, reincarnation Mm -hmm. after the death of the body. The body of light is generally considered to evolve in wisdom, consciousness, and spiritual power through each cycle of reincarnation for those individuals who dedicate their lives to spiritual advancement to the point that its fate after death may ultimately be determined by the will, capital W, of the individual. Thelema incorporates the idea of a cyclic evolution of cultural consciousness as well as personal consciousness. So history is considered to be divided into a series of eons, each with its own dominant concept of divinity and its own formula of redemption and advancement. And this I actually found like super interesting in like a a weird way. The current eon is called the Eon of Horus. The previous was that of Osiris and the previous to that was of Isis. So the Neolithic eon of Isis is considered to have been dominated by the maternal idea of divinity and its formula involved devotion to Mother Earth in return for the nourishment and shelter she provided. The classical medieval eon of Osiris is considered to have been dominated by the paternal principle and its formula was that of self-sacrifice and submission to the father god. The modern eon of Horus is considered to be dominated by the principle of the child, the sovereign individual, and its formula is that of growth in consciousness and love toward self-realization. According to Thelemic doctrine, the expression of divine law in the eon of Horus is do what thou wilt. This law of Thelema, as it is called, is not to be interpreted as a license to indulge every passing whim, but rather as the divine mandate to discover one's true will or true purpose in life and to accomplish it, leaving others to do the same in their own unique ways. Um, Some of the practices traditionally associated with occultism, like all of the things all three of us are into, astrology, divination, numerology, yoga, tantric alchemy, and discourse with... (laughs) I don't even know what that means. Are you having sex while you're trying to make gold? Or is your sex making gold? Uh, tantric alchemy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and discourse with angels or spirits are used by Thelemites uh, <clears throat> as a means for obtaining spiritual insights into the nature of one's being and one's place in the universe. Thelema considers any action which is not directed toward the discovery and accomplishment of the true will to be black magic. This includes acts of interference with any other individual's exercise of their right to discover and accomplish their own true will. Thelemic doctrine says the disharmony and imbalance created by such actions results in a compensatory, equilibrating response from the universe, which normal people just know as karma. (laughs) Um, Thelema has no direct parallel to the Judeo-Christian concept of the devil or Satan, However, a pseudo-personification of confusion, distraction, illusion, and egotistical ignorance is referred to by the name Charanzan, which I'm I'm guessing he, I mean, he thought summoning the demon Charanzan was like the height of his magical career, but I guess it wasn't such a great experience all around. 
Like all great religions, Thelema has a wonderful list of official holy days set forth. In the Book of Law, chapter 2, verses 36 through 41, the rituals of the elements and feasts of the times are observed at the equinoxes and solstices. The feast for the first night of the prophet and his bride is observed on August 12th. The feast for the three days of the writing of the Book of Law is observed on April 8th, 9th, and 10th, beginning at noon each day. The feast for the supreme ritual, the Invocation of Horus, is observed on March 20th and represents the opening of the Thelemic New Year. So they are like, um, basically like Judaism, where their New Year starts on a different date and they follow a different calendar than the Gregorian calendar. Um, the feast for the equinox of the gods is held on the vernal equinox of each year to commemorate the founding of Thelema in 1904. And besides these specific holy days, there are three points of passage in the, light, in the life of each Thelemite. So birth is celebrated in a feast for life. Puberty is celebrated in a feast for fire for a boy and a feast for water for a girl. The death of the individual is commemorated in a greater feast for death. And nearly all Thelemites keep a record of their personal practices and their progress in a magical diary. And most of them also practice a particular form of prayer four times per day, which is specified in the in a book called Liber Resh Vel Helios. Luckily, this book is super short, and I'm sure you were like, Renee, wouldn't it be great if you read part of this these religious texts in their entirety? And I, because like Kelly, I'm clairvoyant. I heard you. So I'm going to read part of their sacred text. Well, not part. I'm going to read this book in its entirety. Um, you're welcome in advance. <clears throat> so this is uh, Liber Resh Vel Helios. Let him greet the sun at dawn, facing east, giving the sign of his grade. And let him say in a loud voice, Hail unto thee who art raw in thy rising. Even unto thee who art raw in thy strength, who travelest over the heavens in thy bark at the uprising of the sun. Tahuti standeth in his splendor at the prow, and Rahor abideth at the helm. Hail unto thee from the abodes of night. Also at noon, let him greet the sun, facing south, giving the sign of his grade, and let him say in a loud voice, Hail unto thee who art Ahathor in thy triumphing. Even unto thee who art Ahathor in thy beauty, who travelest over the heavens in thy bark at the mid-course of the sun, Tahuti standeth in his splendor at the prow, and Rahor abideth at the helm. Hail unto thee from the abodes of morning. Also at sunset, let him greet the sun, fa facing west, giving the sign of his grade, and let him say in a loud voice, Hail unto thee who art Tum in thy setting, even unto thee who art Tum in thy joy who travelest over the heavens in thy bark at the downgoing of the sun. Tahuti standeth in his splendor at the prow, and Rahor abideth at the helm. Hail unto thee from the abodes of day. Lastly, at midnight, let him greet the sun, facing north, giving the sign of his grade, and let him say in a loud voice, Hail unto thee who art Kephra in thy hiding, even unto thee who art Kephra in thy silence, who travelest over the heavens in thy bark at the midnight hour of the sun. Tahuti standeth in his splendor at the prow, and Rahor abideth at the helm. Hail unto thee from the abodes of evening. And after each of these invocations, thou shalt give the sign of silence, and afterward thou shalt perform the adoration that is taught thee by thy superior. And then 
do thou compose thyself to holy meditation. Also, it is better if in these adorations thou assume the God form of whom thou adorest, as if thou didst unite with him in the adoration of that which is beyond him. Thou shalt ever be mindful of the great work which thou hast undertaken to perform, and thus shalt thou be strengthened to pursue it under the attainment of the stone of the wise, the summon bonum, true wisdom, and perfect happiness. Thelemites often take mystic names or magical mottos for themselves as a sign of commitment, which Katie talked about earlier in the Hermetic Order. So that's definitely something Crowley also took from that particular group of people. And they customarily greet each other with the phrase, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of law, to which the customary response is love is the law, love under will. The two primary terms in these statements are will and love, respectively. In the Greek language, they are thelema, will, and agape, love. Using the Greek technique of isopsophy, which applies a numerical value to each letter, the letters of each of these words sum to 93. So if you take each of the Greek letters from thelema and agape, both of them add up to the number 93. So the number 93 has a huge significance to thelemites. And often they will just say or write that to each other. Okay. And um, so that's the basics. And if you're wondering what kind of people practice this, some famous Thelemites are David Bowie, Jimmy Page, which I don't think anybody is surprised about because he's fucking Jimmy Page. And then everyone's least favorite Beatle, uh, John Lennon, was also a Thelemite. That was really informative, and I'm not being sarcastic. I actually legit, like, even though I read most of that, kind of, sort of, this week, I feel like I learned a lot. I mean, I think that all three of us are Thelemites, without, like, the prayer part, but... Literally, when I was researching, I was like, oh my god. Oh my god. I finally found where I belong? What? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, we're all we're all secretly Thelemites and we didn't realize it. So I wanted to talk just a little bit about um, Aleister Crowley's personal life, some of his personal views, um, his legacy, how you may have heard of him in pop culture and just things like that. So um, Crowley considered himself to be one of the outstanding figures of his time. And the historian Ronald Hutton stated that in Crowley's youth, he was a self-indulgent and flamboyant young man who oh, really? set about a deliberate flouting and provocation of social and religious norms while being shielded from an outraged public opinion by his wealth. So that was, that's rough. That is, he read him. All right. Hutton also described Crowley as having both an unappeasable desire to take control of any organization that he belonged to and a tendency to quarrel savagely with those who challenged him. Crowley's biographer Martin Booth asserted that Crowley was self-confident, brash, eccentric, egotistic, highly intelligent, arrogant, witty, wealthy, and when it suited him, cruel. Similarly, Richard Spence noted that he was capable of immense physical and emotional cruelty. And then last but not least, biographer Lawrence Sutton noted that Crowley exhibited courage, skill, dauntless energy, and remarkable focus of will, while at the same time showing a blind arrogance, petty fits of bile, and contempt for the abilities of his fellow men. 
So basically, depending on who you ask, Crowley was either like wicked cool and like genius or he was a spoiled rat. <laughs> That's like essentially where we're at. Um, Crowley's political thought was studied by academic Marco Posse, who noted that for Alistair, sociopolitical concerns were subordinate to metaphysical and spiritual ones. He was neither on the political left nor right, but perhaps best categorized as a conservative revolutionary, despite not being affiliated with the German-based conservative revolutionary movement. Crowley's affinity to the extreme ideologies of Nazism and Marxism-Leninism, which aimed to violently overturn society. Mm. What Crowley liked about Nazism and communism, or at least what made him curious about them, was the anti-Christian position and the revolutionary and socially subversive implications of these two movements. In their subversive powers, he saw the possibility of annihilation of old religious traditions and the creation of a void that Thelema subsequently would be able to fill. So that's not great. When I read that, I was really (laughs) sad. (laughs) Anywho, Crowley described democracy as an imbecile and nauseating cult of weakness and commented that the book of the law proclaimed that there is the master and there is the slave, the noble and the serf, the lone wolf and the herd. And in this attitude, he was influenced by the work of... Frederick Nietzsche and by social Darwinism. Although he had contempt for most of the British aristocracy, he regarded himself as an aristocrat and styled himself um, once describing his ideology as aristocratic communism. (laughs) A mood, I guess. Uh, Yes. (laughs) That's wild. Um, Crowley was bisexual and exhibited a sexual preference for women with his relationships with men being fewer and clustered in the early part of his life. In particular, he had an attraction toward exotic women and claimed to have fallen in love on multiple occasions. And when he loved, he did so with his whole being, but the passion was typically short-lived. Even in later life, Crowley was able to attract young bohemian women to be his lovers, largely due to his charisma. He applied the term scarlet woman to various female lovers whom he believed played an important role in his magical work. During homosexual anal intercourse, he usually played the passive role, which Booth believed appealed to his masochistic side, an underlying theme in many of his writings. That's interesting. That I was that's interesting. When I read that, I was like, "Huh, I could have definitely sworn that he would have been a top, but oh no, he's way too intuitive and sensitive, I think." He believed and wrote in many of his writings that spiritual enlightenment arises through transgressing socio-sexual norms. Um, he advocated complete sexual freedom for both men and women, and he argued that homosexual and bisexual people should not suppress their sexual orientations, commenting that a person must not be ashamed or afraid of being homosexual if he happens to be so at heart. He must not attempt to violate his own true nature because of public opinion or medieval morality, religious prejudice, or anything of the sort which would wish he were otherwise. 
on other issues. He adopted a more conservative attitude. Um, He opposed abortion uh, and believed that no woman following her true will would ever desire one. Yeah, it's a very, uh, he's got very contrasting, like, belief systems. I feel like there was somebody else we covered recently who was like that, but I can't remember who. Super wishy-washy? I don't know. Um, His biographer, Lawrence Sutton, stated that blatant bigotry is a persistent minor element in all of Crowley's writings. And he thought that um, Crowley was the spoiled scion of a wealthy Victorian family who embodied many of the worst John Bull racial and social prejudices of his upper-class contemporaries. So, like I said... Basically, a spoiled brat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, apparently, he also wasn't a very good friend because he insulted his close Jewish friend, Victor Neuberg, using anti-Semitic slurs um, and always complaining about his mixed opinions about Jews as a group. Although he praised their sublime poetry and stated that they exhibited imagination, romance, loyalty, and humanity... Mm-hmm. He also thought that centuries of persecution had led some Jews to exhibit servility, falseness, cunning, and the rest. He was also known to praise various ethnic and cultural groups. For instance, he thought that the Chinese people exhibited a spiritual superiority to the English and praised Muslims for exhibiting manliness, straightforwardness, subtlety, and self-respect. Critics and adherents of Crowley and Thelema have accused him of sexism. Both describe Crowley as exhibiting general misogyny, something the biographer believed arose from Crowley's bad relationship with his mother. Um, it's also been noted that he largely accepted the notion implicitly embodied in Victorian sexology of women as secondary social beings in terms of intellect and sensibility. Um, And it's been noted that his statements were undoubtedly misogynist by contemporary standards, although it's stressed that his attitude to women was complex and multifaceted. That's like saying, like, he hits me, but he always says sorry. Like, um, no. (laughs) Yeah, I unfortunately have to agree. (laughs) Um, he often described women as moral inferiors who had to be treated with firmness, kindness, and justice. While simultaneously arguing that Thelema was essential to women's emancipation. Gross. So it's just like, women need me to emancipate them. They need a big, strong man to tell them what to do. Yep. So I put all that in my notes just because I thought it was really interesting how like pop culture kind of like favors him and the way that they talk about him, but like how fucked up he really was. Yeah, like he had so many, he had so many like amazing cool things about him and very interesting and and really kind of like uh. a really interesting mindset but then also so dated and archaic in you know other really important stuff Mm -hmm. Um, Crowley gained widespread notoriety during his lifetime being a recreational drug experimenter bisexual and an individualist social critic he has been called the wickedest man in the world 
and labeled a Satanist by popular press. Crowley has remained a highly influential figure over Western esotericism and the counterculture and also continues to be considered a prophet in Thelema. He is the subject of various biographies and academic studies, as well as the favor of many celebrities in British pop culture. Um, so after death, he remained an influential figure, both amongst occultists and um, mostly UK pop culture, but also other parts of the world as well. In 2002, a BBC poll placed Crowley 73rd in a list of 100 great, greatest ever Britons. So, like, that's not that high on the list, but also all the Britons that ever lived, I'm kind of surprised he made the list, to be honest. Yeah, but a lot of British people kind of suck. That's true. That's, that's true. Richard Cavendish said this about him. In native talent, penetrating intelligence, and determination, Alistair Crowley was the best equipped magician to emerge since the 17th century. Crowley is the best and most extreme representation of the dark side of the occult and easily the most notorious occultist magician of the 20th century. He made important contributions to practices all over the world, including modern Western response to East Asian spiritual traditions and distinctly original thought and new study of yoga in the West. The Lima continued to develop and spread following Crowley's death. In 1969, the OTO was reactivated in California under Grady Lewis McCurdy, and in 1985, its right to the title was unsuccessfully challenged by a rival group. Another American Thelemite is the filmmaker Kenneth Anger, who had been influenced by Crowley's writings from a young age. Several Western esoteric traditions other than Thelema were also influenced by Crowley. He became a more than dominant figure in the modern pagan community. And my favorite fun fact of my research was um, that the American founder of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard, was involved in Thelema in the early 1940s. And it has been argued and confirmed that Crowley was his major influence in developing what we know as Scientology. That's actually really funny you said that. Because when I was doing my research and I found out that um, Thelemites kind of write down everything they're going through in their like magic journal or magical diary, and they keep a record of their entire personal practice. I was like, this reminds me of auditing where you talk to somebody and you tell them it's basically like a therapy session. And, you know, you tell them what you're going through and they keep a meticulous record of it. I was like, oh, this is like the better version of auditing. So it entirely makes sense that L. Ron Hubbard drew inspiration from this. Yeah, and it's like been confirmed like that Aleister Crowley was like the like capital I inspiration for modern Scientology. Like that's nuts. While Crowley was not a classified Satanist, he in many ways embodied the pre-Satanist esoteric discourse on Satan and Satanism through his lifestyle and philosophy, with his image becoming an important influence on the development of religious Satanism. In British pop culture, Crowley had a wide influence as well. After his time in Cephalu, which had brought him public attention in Britain, various literary Crowleys appeared, um, which means like characters based on him. Um, in the novels, The Dancing Floor and The Devil Rides Out, Crowley is used as a basis for priests engaging in black magic. He's on the cover of the Beatles album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, 
and his motto, Do What Thou Wilt, was inscribed on the vinyl of Led Zeppelin's album, Led Zeppelin 3. Jimmy Page bought Bolskine in 1971, and part of the band's film, The Song Remains the Same, was filmed on the grounds. Uh, David Bowie makes several references to Crowley in his songs, and most famously, especially for me, was Ozzy Osbourne's Mr. Crowley. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody. You feel bad what? I said everybody we love. I know. It's so weird. I have such like conflicting feelings. Like I want it. I want to appreciate him, but I also really just want to fucking hate his guts. Yeah, like he's so cool, and yet he is such like uh, thinking. What is like MGTOW views on women? Yeah, for sure. All right, kids. Well, that's all I had on the pop culture and legacy and uh, views of Aleister Crowley. A very um, interesting, varied individual. Anyways, I hope you guys uh, will decide to become Thelemites with us. I mean, I've just pretty much decided that I'm probably going to become one. And uh, I won't force you to uh, to become one, but I, I think you should. And I think, uh, I don't know, as far as like weird religions go, you know, you can't go wrong. I'll do, I'll do weird prayers four times a day. I don't know about midnight because I'm old, but I can try it. You're drinking fucking coffee. Yeah, I drink coffee until I go to bed. I drink coffee from the moment I wake up until the moment I go to bed. I will. I have finished that coffee like 15 minutes ago, and when this recording is over, I will tuck myself into my into my little snuggly bed with my my wife and my two dogs, and I will go right to sleep. That's how my mom is too. She literally drinks it from sunrise to sunset. If y'all can pluck me from Buddha Field, I will be a. Uh, a thelemite. Yeah, well, I I can't become a member of Heaven's Gate, so I guess I'm gonna have to become a thelemite. It's <laughs> the only other, it's the only other alternative for me. We've got words I can't pronounce, weird prayers, and um, Satan. What else do I need? <laughs> okay, well, on that note, kids, uh, does anyone have any positive notes on on uh? On our current state of the country to tell the kids any good news. Wash your fucking hands and believe Dr. Fauci. Believe him. He's been a doctor for a really long time. And uh, I think he knows what he's talking about. He got us through the AIDS crisis. He got us through SARS. He got us through H1N1. You know. Ursula, Mad Cow, Zika, Ebola. I mean, he's old as shit. He survived all these fucking viruses. He's very smart. Just like stay the fuck home, learn to knit, learn to crochet, bake some bread. It's not get bad. We'll get through this. Let me just tell you, let me just put one quick little bug in everyone's ears, okay? I don't really mind if you're a conservative and you're a listener. I'm not sure how you lasted this long, but if you're here, we welcome you. If you're you know, anywhere in the middle, even if you're a libertarian, I still love you. But let me just tell you that if we had the same president now as we did in 2014 when Ebola came back or out or whatever, we would all be dead. Okay. And you want to know why we are not all dead? It's because we had a president who believed in public health funding and pandemic preparations. Dude, if, if, 
if Trump had been president in the 90s, then the ent- we would have crashed in y- like Y2K would have actually happened because he would have been like, it's not a big deal. I've asked lots of people and they tell me the computers are fine. <laughs> like, oh it's like everybody thinks Y2K was a hoax now because lots of people worked very, very hard to get everything fixed so everything would work in 2000. Like, that's what needs to happen is people who know what they're doing work very hard so that bad stuff doesn't happen so that we can say, oh, I guess that didn't exist. Exactly. Ebola was like a vine trend. Okay? Yeah. Keep that in mind. Okay? That is something that we would have not been prepared for on such a scale that I don't even know what would happen. But I'm telling you right now that science is real, in case you forgot. And unless you've been to med school, you don't know what you're talking about. So wash your hands. Stay home. Love each other. Don't be a racist. And, uh, yeah. That's fine. Unless you're planning on voting for Donald Trump again, then hit the beach. Hit the road. Do whatever you want to do. Go outside. Yeah. Yeah. Do, Do whatever you want. Go wherever you want. And don't wash your hands and rub your face in the dirt on a regular basis. Do what you want to. My personal favorite, you know, Donald Trump is the is the second coming of Christ. And if it's meant to be, it'll be. So just live your life, man. <laughs> oh, that's my new personal favorite that I've seen on the internet. We're we're gonna, you know, we'll still be here next time, hopefully. We hope you guys will be here next time. Take care of yourselves and each other. Yes, love yourself, love others, love science. Mm-hmm. Because uh, we love you, and we love each other, and we love ourselves, and we love science. That's all we have, kids. We'll see you next time for uh, quarantine sessions. Oh, and we'll see each other at some point. Yeah, oh. Oh. window. All right, we'll see you next time, guys. Bye, friends. Bye. Bye. Like anybody, I would like to live. I do that. I just want to do God's will. Just to do. But I want you to know tonight.